Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Robert Waples, a senior fellow at the Independent Institute and economics professor at Wake Forest University and editor and contributing author on the new book, Is Social Justice Just? Robert Waples, thank you for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thanks for having me on. I'd like to know why you wrote a book about social justice and also just how you put this book together because it's an interesting compilation. I'll start with the second. We had a symposium in the journal that I edit, the Independent Review, and we asked for submissions. We decided to take those and all the other good ones and turn it into this book. And it's obviously a very timely topic. I think something that everybody's been discussing lately, you know, what is social justice? And so we've asked this question, is social justice just? And our, our answer is that it can be, and so here are some suggestions for making it so. We start with the question of what is justice and then move from there to, okay, tell me about social justice. And we go with the, you know, the old-fashioned, the ancient, the medieval definition of justice, the constant and perpetual will to render to each what is due to him or her. So, for example, I hire you to build a deck my backyard, I agree, I'm going to pay you $10,000, and you're going to build me a really nice deck. And so what's just is that I give you the $10,000, and you give me a really nice deck. Okay. So what, what then is, is social justice? How do we move from you know, just on an individual basis to social justice? And so it moves beyond just enforcing the rules and the agreements to you know, what are a fair set of rules and norms in our society. And that's where things get very tricky. And we always have to worry about people standing behind like this mantle of social justice and just using it to pretend that they're on the moral high ground and really using it to just try to make them enrich themselves, what what economists call rent-seeking. It does seem to be the case today that this is used almost as a a social control mechanism for uh, people who want to achieve a certain outcome. Do you see the same thing? Yeah, I think a lot of the authors in the the book see the same thing. But I think most of them also see, you know, potential here. Uh, I, in my introduction and also in the essay that I contributed, open with this statement. And and I think it, it rings true. We all hunger to live in a just world. And we work constantly in ways great and small to promote justice. So how can we best promote it is the question. And if there's a consensus view among the academic contributors to this volume, uh, it is that social justice can be rehabilitated. That term can be rehabilitated 
if it stands on legitimate principles that have to recognize each person as a unique, unrepeatable person worthy of dignity and endowed, I think this is crucial, endowed with the ability to direct his or her own life without harming other people, yet noble enough to care deeply about the well-being of other people. And so I think that's the people that I meet. That's us. That's Americans. I think we can achieve this. And that implies then stamping out unwarranted special privileges that people have. So, you know, bailouts to big firms and crony capitalism and giving privileges to people so they can erect barriers to entry and competition can't come into, you know, the market where they are. That's not just. That's, that's certainly not. That's not a good set of rules. But once we start getting the state involved in trying to call the shots, and especially in coercive redistribution of resources, we know that this can rapidly decay into just simple rent-seeking, everybody trying to get money for themselves. So we're looking for a, a ground somewhere in between. It's not the status quo, because we know that there's some unjust privileges people have here, but also not the state just calling all the shots and saying, I don't like the way things turned out. Now you've got to give this to that person. It sounds, Robert, very libertarian, at least in the way that you just described it. And pretty much let me do my own thing and, and leave me alone and, mm-hmm. and we'll kind of be nice to each other. So is there, is there a strong streak of libertarianism running through this particular I, definition? I, 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 I would say that many of the authors lean toward being libertarian, although eh, I'm not sure that's a label that you know most of them would be comfortable with. Uh, I would say more old-school classical liberal, and of course I know that's similar to, to libertarianism. Uh, the, the lead essay, we had a contest in the journal, and the editors picked the best essay, and the person won $10,000 thanks to a very nice donor. The lead essay really drew on Adam Smith. So it was kind of a Smithian classical liberalism. That lead essay was by uh, Jim Otteson, who teaches, he's a philosopher, he teaches in the business school at Notre Dame. And, you know, he goes back to Smith, and what Smith says is justice actually protects us from the coercion of other people, giving us the ability to, like, opt out they can't force us to do things. We have other places to go. But it protects our persons, our property, and our promises, the three Ps of Smith. Uh, and justice then implies voluntary consent and cooperation amongst people. Yeah, you can see that as, as libertarian. I call it more of a classical liberal bent. So as we look at the, the modern use of this term, and you talked about rehabilitating the term, which means it's uh, probably been corrupted a little bit at least, mm-hmm. um, where did this start, the, the modern usage of social justice that we hear talked about it, uh, thrown around in the media these days? My understanding is that it actually came out of some uh, documents from the Catholic Church, and then people took it and kind of moved it and stretched it in whatever direction that they wanted to. The, you know, the word social put in front of justice kind of shifts the, the focus from being just and treating other people justly to, oh, not me, let's, uh, problems are society's fault, and let's get, you know, society collectively to solve these problems. And of course, some of the problems in our society are, quote unquote, society's fault. We're, we're all collectively part of the problem. And so we'd want to, we'd want to deal with problems like that uh, as well. And one example, uh, the very last of the chapters in the book, is titled Social Justice, Anti-Racism, and Public Policy, and I wrote that chapter. Mm-hmm. Essentially, 
a response to works like How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. You know, it was on the bestseller list a couple of years ago. So let's take that point of view seriously and then think about what policies could be put in place to end up with a society, as Kendi would exhort us to, to end with a society where we are all on an equal footing. What would that entail? He argues that capitalism and racism are conjoined twins. I do not see it that way at all. Of course, the opposite of capitalism, if you will, is socialism, and socialism just concentrates power into a few people's hands and just destroys property. Uh, excuse me, destroys prosperity mm-hmm. as well as property. So, you know, you look at Venezuela or something. That's equal footing. We don't want to be equal at the bottom of a pit, I don't think. I'd, I'd rather have us be kind of relatively equal more toward the top of a mountain. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what, what can we do to get people from all groups onto roughly an equal footing in a society like ours? And so I then talk about, you know, here's some ideas that have been discussed in, in the Independent Review, the journal I edit, and other ideas. And so at the top of my list, I would put education reform. Candy, you know, talks about, you know, growing up and the schools in New York where he was growing up and, you know, he later moved to Virginia and just how he hated these schools and just how horrible. And I'm like, okay, I, I understand that. Um, let's change our educational system to put power into parents' hands so that they can select the very best school. One size does not fit all, the very best school for their own kids. Maybe something like charter schools and, and you know, parental vouchers, that kind of thing, I think would be far more just. Uh, I talk about health care, how we could perform that, and eliminating occupational licensing so that people can get into jobs. Uh, exclusionary zoning, mm-hmm. which makes it very difficult for you to build affordable housing places, especially the places where there's opportunity people want to move to. In the old days, people used to move when Detroit was booming. It was the Motor City, and people just moved there. Nowadays, you want to move to Silicon Valley or you know, New York, Miami, whatever. You can't afford to move there. I have other suggestions in the chapter. You know, Cheap energy. I, I don't see green energy as all that green, but I know it's very expensive. And so I advocate in the, the chapter, you know, fracking. Boy, what a boon that was in holding down energy prices, especially for the poor who spend a much bigger fraction of their income on, on energy than, than rich people do. So ending bailouts and cronyism and moving toward freer trade, you know, those kinds of suggestions I make in that chapter. Now, this is interesting that you brought up, Kendi, because uh, the local school division around here has actually embraced him, has declared mm-hmm. themselves to be anti-racist. And the, the whole mm-hmm. idea is if you're not with us, you're against us. If you don't make this declaration, yeah. then you're bad and you're evil and you are a racist. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to respond to that because this is really a coercive form of social justice. Yeah, there's just so much anger in it. That's my reaction to reading his book. It just, wow, I'm getting the like a sunburn from just this rage of anger that's coming out of this book. Uh, and so you, can, you can't start with that. You have to start with principles of cooperation where you don't see the other people as the enemy, where you see people as cooperating. That's what drives economic prosperity. That's what drives good education, cooperation among people. And sometimes people just can't cooperate. And so in that case, okay, let's just you go over and do your thing there in your school, and we'll do our thing over here in this school, and we'll see which one works out better. And I think maybe 
my way of thinking will work out better, and so maybe I'll attract more people to doing it my way. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, and people will want to come over to the way you do it. But you don't throw hostile people together and, and expect great outcomes. This is fascinating that you bring this up because I have called for the same thing, the same sort of thing on a state-by-state basis and allowing for states to have the same philosophy and for people to move to the place where they want to live. And if they Mm -hmm. want to live under a coercive government of social justice like California, where I came from, uh, they could live there. Mm -hmm. Or if they wanted to live in a free state like Florida, they could live there. And yet uh, the people on one side of this argument don't seem to want to let go. In other words, they don't want to give parents choice with their own money and how they educate Mm -hmm. their kids. And they don't want to give us the freedoms that we want to have. They want everything under their control. So that's the big difference between these two points of view. One starts with the principle that I, and I began with a few minutes ago, that you know, each, we believe that each of the people out there, all my neighbors, uh, are endowed with the ability to direct their own lives. And because I think that, I'm okay with them making choices. And the other group seems to just think that, no, in fact, my group is the only one who really knows how to do things right, and you don't, so i got to force you to do it. And the second one just does not sound consistent with the United States of America. That doesn't sound consistent with any good world that I want to live in. You talked about uh, winding up in the pit, and I have another way of putting it that I've been using for a while, which is the lowest common denominator, a mathematical concept. Yeah. But how is it that the other side responds to this? Because I see it the same way. It's like, we're just all going to be equal, but we're all going to be at the bottom of the barrel. Uh, So did you ever hear Kendi or or any of these others respond to that criticism? Yeah, I have not gone and watched his videos online, having read his book. But, you know, I I suspect reading the book that the response is basically that me, I'm part of the problem because I just have these blinders on and I don't really realize what's going on. And I'm in a privileged position and all I really want to do is protect my own privilege. And so I am in a privileged position, but so is he. And so are basically all modern Americans. I did, wrote a a paper last year where I tried to calculate where the poorest 5% of Americans fall in the income distribution. So obviously they're at the fifth percentile when it comes to the United States. But if you look around the world, the poorest 5% of Americans are at the 68th percentile income-wise. That's Bronco Milanovic's calculation. And then I went a step further. I said, well, what about among all the people who have ever lived? Mm. Over 110 billion people have ever lived, according to the historians, right? And if you go back and look at historical estimates of standards of living, whatever, and for each one of the periods, I estimated that the poorest 5% of Americans would be at the 95th percentile among all people who've ever lived. There's an unfairness. All those poor people in the past can't enjoy the standard of living that the poorest of us enjoy today. So we have created a system over the last few centuries that has just unleashed prosperity by getting us to cooperate with each other, by getting us to you know, tap into the minds of the best and the brightest, but also setting up institutions so that we can just play fair with each other, not try to rip each other off like those privileged people, the kings and queens and whatever back in the old days did. But we all cooperate with each other, and we've become very prosperous as a result. And based on our example, other countries around the world have have copied this. And so prosperity is just spreading all over the world right now. That's 
a just system to me. That's standing roughly equally up near the top of the mountain and not down at the bottom of that pit. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues in a moment with our guest, Robert Wables. Charlottesville's Community Watchdog. Borderhawk.news is a one-stop shop with the latest news about immigration, nationalism, and globalism. The Borderhawk staff daily curates immigration news stories and, in the fashion of the Drudge Report, updates the site with cutting-edge content and original first-class commentary. Borderhawk.news highlights national and international media reports, tweets and nuggets buried in local news blurbs, polls, video clips, and policy research. Borderhawk is pro-legal immigration, pro-rule of law, but against an unsecure border as countless Americans have suffered violence at the hands of criminal illegal aliens. And an increasing number of Americans are concerned about how mass migration affects their daily life. Borderhawk.news will remain on the forefront of the immigration issue with a buffet of info to read, evaluate, and share. Bookmark Borderhawk.news. Add them on social media at Borderhawknews on Twitter. We continue now with Robert Waples. The book is, Is Social Justice Just? And we're getting into the topic on a deep dive here. I wanted to talk about the concept because you mentioned, as we were just talking, justice and fairness. Uh, what's the difference between the two and can they coexist? Yeah. Uh, so from that definition that I started with, justice being a constant perpetual will to render to each what is due him, that's got like a massive overlap with fairness. Uh, once you have set up a set of rules that people agree to, I'm going to build the deck, or you are building the deck, and I'm going to pay you to build the deck, uh, then fairness is if we actually follow through with what we did. Uh, would it be unfair if I paid you uh, $11,000? I said you did a great job and gave you a $1,000 tip. Uh, no, that wouldn't be unfair. Would it be unfair if I withheld some of the money? And I said, nah, I just don't think you've done a good job. Well, then we'd have to have somebody look at it and then an arbitrator who's neutral and look at it. And he would say, no, actually, this is a pretty good deck. And so it would be fair that I did pay you. So that's, that, that's how we get to fairness, I think. We make agreements with each other. And if we still don't see eye to eye to, uh, with each other, we have some sort of mechanism that we've set up ahead of time. We would agree on. And if we disagree, then we'll have somebody else we both agree on who's neutral would decide in favor of who. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. There's also yeah. a, a very interesting term in the book, which I'd never heard before, but I like it a lot. It's called justice creep which talks mm. about expanding issue range yeah. about which we're supposed to feel resentment. And, and we see this going on all the time. Give us a few examples of oh, justice. Sure is. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you start with pick your group uh, that has been treated unfairly and many groups have been treated unfairly and throughout our history. And then we push this to another group and another group and another, or you look at one outcome, you know, incomes, like the rules of access to labor markets. And we, have gotten rid of laws that blocked access of, of people to labor markets. We got rid of Jim Crow laws. We got rid of discrimination. The outcomes still aren't equal. Okay, so it's got to be something else, and we just kind of push it to 
government needs to step in and fix this and needs to fix that. It just needs to keep going and going. Uh, internet access, you know, whatever the latest thing that comes along, you know, AI access, that'll be the next one. Mm-hmm. Uh, different groups have different levels of access to artificial intelligence. These students are able to form premium AI and go on and get to have AI write great papers and get A's on them. And these students don't, uh, you know, it'll just keep going and going and going. That's a problem in and of itself. Is, mm-hmm. is there anything to be done? I mean, wh- where do we draw the line and how do we draw the line ethically when we say, okay, this really is not part of what we're talking about? So I think the idea is to draw the line kind of far back. And that is that don't worry about the little things, right? Worry about the big things. Are people well-fed? Are they well-housed? Do they have access to adequate education? And, you know, the things that you need to kind of get to roughly the same starting point in society. And then the smaller things, you just can't keep pushing it because one side wants to keep pushing. Yes, there always has to be some outrage. And so if you, I think if you step back 50 years ago or 60 years ago, 60 years ago, let's say, at the height of the civil rights movement, and you saw what people are arguing about today, you would go, wow, we probably should have drawn the line a lot clearer and that we don't need to go that far. How do we grapple with injustices that can't be remedied? Because not everything you can wrap a bow around. <laughs> and that's exactly right. So in the that lead essay I was talking about by Jim Otteson, he said, we need to distinguish outcomes that are due to A, luck, B, the deliberate choices that people are entitled to make, and then C, those deliberate choices that people are not entitled to make. That's what we need to focus on, C. When people are getting something special or are being harmed because somebody made a deliberate choice that they're just not entitled to make. Taking uh, somebody's property would be like that, but also going to the government and lobbying them and <clears throat> passing around just the right amount of campaign contributions so that the government gives you a big hand at it at the taxpayer's expense. So that's what we need to focus on. People who are you know, making deliberate choices they're not entitled to make that somehow stack the deck in somebody's favor and, and against somebody else. When it comes to deliberate choices that we are entitled to make, if that leads to different outcomes, we just have no room for complaint at all. If one student studies hard and plays by the rules and does well and earns a lot of money, and the other one just blows one opportunity after another and doesn't learn anything and therefore ends up with not a you know, very good paying job, they made their choices, you know, the rules were explained to them just by living in society. Then the last category is luck. And there, you know, the debate can go on for a long time, but we have to realize there will be a certain amount of luck in society. Gainsaying somebody else's good luck all the time or expecting a bailout because there is just bad luck can be very destructive. So we have ways of protecting ourselves from bad luck, like you buy insurance. So if lightning hits your house, okay, it burns down, you get compensated for it. We've got a way, a lot of good ways of kind of dealing with bad luck. But what it seems to me is we have gotten in society toward complaining about other people's good luck so much. You know, you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You were born with good genes. You were born in the right neighborhood. You were 
Okay, and now you're really wealthy. You know what? That's called envy. When that's the way you look at things, when what you want to, you're just jealous of somebody else's success and you want to tear them down to the lowest level. That's envy. Envy is one of the seven deadly sins. Indeed it is. Now, you, you mentioned uh, people getting a thumb on the scale, getting benefits and so forth. And I, I see one of this, uh, some of this happening with social justice as it applies towards the rule of law. It's almost like an attack on the rule of law because certain people seem to get off because of their circumstances and other people mm-hmm. will be prosecuted. So is that something we ought to be concerned about? We definitely should. And there's a couple of chapters in the, the book that just make this point front and center that our, our take here in Is Social Justice Just?, is not that the status quo is perfect. No, the status quo is riddled with some injustices where people have, as you said, put their thumbs on the scale and get some special privileges thrown their way, mainly by connections with the government. I mean, how else do you get special privileges thrown your way? And that's the kind of thing that we need to just police very vigilantly. Everybody front, you know, left, right, and center should be against special handouts to, you know, anybody from the government because they're paid for by coercive taxation on everybody else, and then go to just this, these special handful of people who have connections with the ends, and, and that's just wrong. There are some, and this is an interesting thing to think about in the book, but there are some merits to inequality. In other mm-hmm. words, uh, better for us to just accept that this is the case. So how do we, how do we look mm-hmm. at it that way? One of the chapters, Pascal Salin, I think, uh, says mm-hmm. that you know, inequality is, is actually just not just a core concept, but it's a beautiful thing. Imagine living in a world where we were all equal. That'd be horrible. We'd be like ants or something, you know, rather than the individuals that we are. You know, the the most fundamental concept in all of economics, uh, I teach this like day two of intrarity economics, is that we can gain from trading with each other when we have a comparative advantage goes back to you know David Ricardo. Comparative advantage is when we have different sets of abilities. You can do A relatively better than me, and I can do B relatively better than you. That's what allows us to gain from trading with each other, the fact that we are different from one another. Sometimes I sit back and I think, what if everybody in the world was like me? Mm-hmm. I'm like, what a horrible world, you know? <laughs> Not just because it'd be boring, but uh, a horrible world because I just don't have a, a whole range of abilities and all those things that need to be done with you know, those abilities I don't have. I'm like all thumbs when it comes to fixing things. Yeah. I'm like, I'm also like blind in one eye. <laughs> I'm just, uh, Boy, that would not be a very good world. I'm glad I have a world where I can trade with other people, and I, I know how to do some things relatively better than them, and they, that's what makes us prosperous, actually, our very inequalities. Robert Waples, if people want to get a copy of your new book, Is Social Justice Just?, or if they want to follow your work online at the Independent mm-hmm. Institute, tell us how they can do that. Yes, yeah, just go to independent.org, and so the Independent Institute, and you'll see all the wonderful things that the Institute does. Uh, we've got a, a lot of interesting projects, including some video projects. But we published uh, a lot of scholarly work, including the Independent Review, which I edit. And then you can click on publications and see all the books, uh, and and this one as well. And in fact, you can go to the issue of the journal that a lot of these were published in ahead of time and take a look at the uh, roughly half the content of the book already. You can take a look at it online there. 
Robert Whipples, you've done a terrific job in describing the problem and also proposing some solutions. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. I am very glad that you had me on. Thank you. That concludes another edition of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time. Until next time.